Actually, you sent me this just as I was reading it in another publication, the uh, Journal of American uh, Medical Association Pediatric Stu- JAMA Pediatric Study showed findings. And um, of course, if you look at the methods and materials, things are a little bit more elaborate. But the findings, at least in the news outlets, that this study showed was that, quote, cannabis is as addictive as opioids for teens between 12 and 17. So the thing that I want to tackle, interrupt me anytime. The few things I found interesting about that whole thing as I was piecing it together. uh, One, you might ask, how does this, how does this finding jibe with our overall addiction outlook? And so we'll just say right up front, as you've suggested uh, people like Carl do just sort of get out front with what our notion of addiction is. We don't believe that there is a list of addictive or non-addictive things. And we don't even really, be- we don't even believe that there are more or less addictive things in and of themselves. So we kind of reject that whole premise, but we could take a look at what they mean and, and what we agree with or don't agree with. I don't know if you want to jump in yet. Well, so you would, I mean, I, the first reaction by some of our colleagues, most of our colleagues would be, huh? Marijuana is addictive as opioids. What the hell is that about? Yeah. And we'd say, um, as I've wrote up with Carl, uh, Carl's not going to utter the words love can be addictive. He's not going to utter the words marijuana can be addictive. Even Ethan, you know, Ethan would choke on those words. And so we look at it and we say, huh? this is where we're coming from, you know? So the thing that they're using as um, like a metric or a reference point is just implied in this whole thing or that you just have to already come in believing opioids are just the most dangerous and addictive drug of all. Like that's, that's the reason for comparison. It's like, as we all know, is this what they're sort of saying tacitly, as we all know, opioids are horrible and dangerous and addictive. And now if we look at marijuana for people young enough, that can be addictive too, just as addictive as those horrible opioids. So they're, what they were looking at is that after, a, this is a quote from them, after a year of trying cannabis, almost 10.7% of adolescents aged 12 to 17 met the criteria of addiction. Those in the same age group who tried prescription opioids had a similar addiction rate of 11.2%, <clears throat> according to the study published Monday in JAMA Pediatrics. And it goes down to 11%. Let's get <coughs> 10.7 and 11.2 are both 11%. Right. People have been using this drug, become addicted to it. Yep. So, so that's that's a news item. They I also, mean, they also tagged on that um, six and about half, uh, a little more than half, six and a half percent of people between 18 and 25 who use cannabis would then qualify, you know, go on after use to qualify as addicted. Uh, I interrupted you. Sorry, what were you saying? Well, go on. So what I, I know what you, you've already sent me your notes. So uh, you round off 6.5% become 6%. So 11% of 12 to 17 year old regular cannabis users are addicted. And that's already dropped to half. Six percent of those uh, well, of what age? Eighteen to twenty-five. So you take it from there. What's what are the what are these numbers saying? 
in plain sight. Yeah, well, I want to know first how how should we be throwing our is the idea that we're supposed to be throwing our weight behind the meme that uh, marijuana should be looked at as a dangerous and addictive drug versus what I think you're trying to lead me to. You got to wonder what is it about being an adolescent that makes addiction generally more likely than someone in adulthood for instance i mean even 18 to 25 is almost it's adult in a lot of ways but it's quasi-adult in other ways in other words there's an even older age group that i I would like to look at to see what happens when those people of those age smoke marijuana and as we know from surveys and studies that the government has put out themselves as people grow older they're less likely to become addicted to some drug that they try um the other thing I want to point out, which I don't, I think the opposite is trying to be implied here, is that, okay, so let's say that a teen does use cannabis and let's say they do become addicted to it. Is the idea supposed to be that it's a life sentence? Like now that they're addicted, there's no turning back. And so, you know, panic around, ah, they could become addicted and that could be their lives. Or would we would like to look at it as... It, okay, so they can become addicted. Why is that? What is it about adolescence that would make that possible and more likely? And um, what would happen after they're addicted? What do you do about it? So we're already, the reassuring information is, uh, we talk about developmental model of addiction. And that developmental model of addiction cracks in already between 18 and 24, when most people would say, well, that's not exactly a period of maturity, but in many cases, they're a little bit more, have their feet on the ground than between 12 and you're, you, you know the 12 to 17 year old population yeah. pretty well, mm-hmm. an area of your expertise. And so are you surprised to find that, you know, by the time they each reach the next stage frame, 18 to 24, half of those who had been addicted to whatever substance cease to be addicted to that substance. No, you know what happens after um, my seniors in high school, I, my, they're not, I'm not trying to be possessive, but the seniors in high school who I teach, they leave and I often get emails and letters from them. You know, I'm, I will go ahead and brag. It's a humble brag, but it's, I'm a person they can connect with. And usually when people come back and visit, if they're only going to visit one person, they're, they're coming back and seeing me and talking to me and wondering what was it about, you know, what was it about me that you thought was, uh, so good that you stuck with me, that kind of a thing. And usually, um, you know, just the year after people graduate, now the expectations are different. They're not sitting in a brick and mortar building all the time for 80 minutes of class. They've started spreading their wings a little bit and they're excited to tell me what the world's like. And so even just like the few months after graduating high school, when someone's 17 or 18, I can already see a development that would be that would be an addiction antidote, let's say, or a deterrent for becoming addicted because there are just opportunities out there. So it doesn't surprise me when Iota that 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 next age bracket up is less likely to become addicted, nor does it surprise me that 12 to 17, when people are trying to form an identity um, and they get they try on various costumes or you know experiences to try to form that identity, that they would be addicted to anything at all. We should use this clip as the, uh, with all due respect to Zach Rhodes, promotional road shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're doing your job and you're sort of 
working with people who have some problems and anxiety. Sometimes that's part of who you deal with. And then lo and behold, not we're not putting down high school. Your job is to get people, help them get through high school. That's a necessary step for many things. But when they reach the next stage already, they're saying, hey, you know, I can try a few things here. I might be okay. Uh, this is a little bit exciting and invigorating and half of them drop off their day, half don't. I mean, 6%, you might say, well, that's not very high, but then you might say, okay, that's another problem that we have to deal with among, you know, 18 to 24 year olds. And there you've given them the sense that this is going to happen. You've sort of laid a little framework, you know, you've got the potential. There's some options that I think you can do it. And they want to come back and, you know, if not brag to you, sort of say, yeah, you know, you're kind of right. I just want to let you know. So here's a question for you. Um, I'll just go ahead and assert the claim that I know we both agree with. So we're not playing any sort of game here. Cannabis isn't any more or less addictive than anything else, than opioids. Um, kids aren't becoming addicted because, and this is another thing that I know is, you know, our, our buddy Nora Volkow is, was highlighted in several articles explaining how um, alarming this research was. And so you could sort of- Now, what just can you lay out what that point of view is? What's what's alarming about it? From her point, um, she, and from her point of view, we're making marijuana cannabis more legal and broad, broadly more legal. And so it's sort of the same idea as vaping or alcohol that we've heard. So- yeah, you have to be 21 to get it, but as it becomes legal and more available, oh no, it's going to be available to these kids and they're going to use it. And now that we know it's addictive, that's a potential prop. You know, so it's like, it's almost like she sees cannabis as this sort of microchip that if it's ingested by a 12 to 17 year old, it's going to stick with them somewhere in their, in their brain. And that sounds almost alongside. I mean, there's so many things happening. We got so many bulls in here. Yeah, yeah. State and New Mexico just legalized recreational marijuana. So, I mean, marijuana is in. I mean, there's some states that are dragging there. I mean, you're now going to have to confront marijuana as something in the world and kids are gonna to have to confront it as, and, and you would be the first to tell us, uh, Stanton, kids already know about marijuana, you know what I mean? Um, the fact that they legalized it near right. New Mexico. I got. I hate to tell you, that's not news on the street about the, marijuana. The joke is, New Mexico and New York residents can now try marijuana for the first time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And of course, the joke is, the opportunity is, once something is legal, can we talk about it in sensible enough terms right. that we can help people navigate that experience? The experience isn't going away. It was there already. And of course, the opioid experience, well, which we'll get more into, we try to make it go. We try. We try to make it go away for centuries. Um, lately, we try to make it go away with by suppressing synthetic narcotics, and we su successfully suppressed synthetic narcotics, and more people died. And so, you know, I don't know when we want to segue into another current event. So we've we're dealing with this survey, which says that. Yeah, marijuana is something that people can become addicted to, to, but marijuana is kind of legal, basically, in the United States. And people are sort of saying, you know, we're just going to let it be legal. Um, and then 
the third thing is uh, Nora Volko saying, oh my God, there'll be more for people to be addicted to. And we're saying the addiction proclivities, the inability to grasp onto life is already there. But the marijuana is already there. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is certainly already there. Um, Painkillers are already there. You know, if if your concept is, oh, let's narrow how many things people can become addicted to that are out there, you're doomed. That's the, not going to work. Well, yeah, right. So the last thing I wanted to throw to you is if we can imagine, which I know you have, imagine if we did the same experiment with something that can be regulated, but never will be. I mean, even if you wanted to, it'd be futile, like gaming. Is might we see, oh, gaming is just as addictive as opioids. And would that matter? Um, or something that could never be regulated, which is love. Um, so when we talk about love for relationship addictions, would we see that relationships in 12 to 17 year olds um, who go on to have some sort of disorder with their relationships, would that be more or less prevalent than uh, opioids? And what will we do about it is the question. Well, I mean, people have done surveys now. Um, how many things using addictive, addictive criteria can people be addicted to and how many get addicted? Um, and they'll say something like, you know, in their lifetimes or at any given point, maybe a half or more people have something that could be identified as addictive in their lives. Going, counting eating, gaming, gambling, love, and alcohol and drugs. And so, the issue, the issue is, how do you avoid addiction? And then, of course, harm reduction is about um, how do you prevent addiction from being life destroying? And so, it, on behalf of marijuana, we don't represent marijuana growers or sellers. As as a general state of affairs, marijuana has fewer lethalities than opioids. So somebody could say, well. If they're going to be addicted, it's better to be addicted to marijuana. Our natural inclination there is to say we're, we're against addiction. We're not a special fans of one kind of addiction or another, but harm reduction people would say, um, well, let's get people. And there's some data to show that in states where marijuana is legal, there are fewer heroin related deaths. Hmm. So you could look at these same data and say, well, they're going to be addicted to something let's pick the least harmful of those things. Yeah, right, right, right. So you wanted to give a broader view of uh, sort of the cannabis conversation, which you've already started touching on. And I should well, let you do uh, that. I want to give a broader, I don't know, I'll, I'll make a giant jump. We're in the middle of a trial right now. George Eric Floyd. Being tried Chauvin. for murder or homicides, a manslaughter. The first person to testify this morning I forgot his name. <laughs> yeah. Why? And the prosecution is prosecuting Derek Chauvin for murder or manslaughter, uh, homicide. Why has the prosecution brought George Floyd's girlfriend to testify? So you, you say more. What do they want to have from her? that's going to enable them to convict Derek Chauvin of murder? What do they need from her to do? Why are they having her testify? It's critical thinking here. 
I mean, one thing they want to do is to, you know, humanize George Floyd. They want, he's a big guy. They want to be a monster. They want him to tell stories. Uh, one joke she told was uh, when he took a selfie, take it off his chin, it's a, a dad selfie, and people laughed. Mm -hmm. So you got a character witness, sort of. Character witness. But what is the negotiation? The prosecutor, they have a video of Derek Chauvin sitting on something, his shoulder or his neck. And the man's suffocating. Mm -hmm. So what's the defense going to say? What's the defense's defense? Yeah, you, the defense's defense has to be something like uh, he was unmanageable. And for him to have been unmanageable, I know that one idea, one angle that they're taking is, well, he was uncontrollable and unmanageable. And he had to be you know, held that way because... He was on drugs, and not only drugs, but the the worst kind of drug, which is fentanyl, which makes people do crazy things. You know, that's one half of the argument, and the second half of the argument was he died of there were half chewed fentanyl pills that he spit out because somewhere along the line of this crazy day, he had taken some fentanyl pills he had, which were they were probably bad pills. They were fentanyl and something some else. death by as asphyxiation because of taking fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. Except they would, everybody would use the term. I mean, we don't have time today to go into everything that's wrong with everything. Uh, there, we, there's no such thing as drug overdose. He would, people die with fentanyl in their system. So they had his girlfriend on. You wouldn't think, wait a second. Now, he's not on trial. Right. He's dead. Right. But um, they had his girlfriend on to tell people that he regularly took fentanyl. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Why are they, is the prosecution, who's in a sense working with George Floyd, bringing in his girlfriend to say, well, he took fentanyl regularly. How does that work to convict Derek Chauvin of homicide? If he's taking fentanyl regularly and he took fentanyl that day, I wouldn't imagine why all of a sudden his body wouldn't tolerate it. Right. That's exactly the point. So, well, you know how there's a movie out now called that's Godzilla versus King Kong. We're having a war of progressive means. So I'm going out in the stratosphere here. One progressive mean is that the police will harm black people for no reason or you know they'll you know they'll deal with them as though their lives don't matter, and we have a videotape of a cop strangulating a guy. So that's good evidence. Mm. We have another meme, and it's a progressive meme. It's a drug policy alliance meme. I, I, I'm going to have to tell a tale out of school. Just before Ethan Nadelman retired in 2017, he came to my apartment in Brooklyn. And while we were there, somehow I, we were talking about drug deaths. And, and he goes, well, standing, fentanyl's different than other drugs. It just kills people. And I thought, oh, my God, Ethan Nadelman has become a drug. Demonizer. A drug demonizer. Why? There, and every time there's a drug myth, there's two things about it. There's an explanation for a drug myth. And there's a consequence of a drug myth. Now, I hate to tell this tale of school. Why 
was Ethan Adelman all of a sudden a drug demonizer around fentanyl? What purpose was it for him to say that? Right, putting it on fentanyl took away from the idea that other drugs uh, were the problem. Uh, that something uncontrolled. Drug demonizer because during his tenure, seven years. You know, DPA was created in 2000, 900,000 people have died of drugs. And Drug Policy Alliance, they're not responsible for that, but they're doing all these great things like suppressing um, opioid um, uh, prescription and propagating MAT, and 900,000 people have died. So you have to, drug mm, mm, are there to explain what we can't deal with. Right, right, right. And our society can't do. Why are more and more people dying of drugs? So you would say something like, um, well, if MAT is the end-all be-all, then can you just explain the most fundamental question? Why, uh, when there's more MAT out there than ever before, it's just ever increasing, there are more deaths, drug overdose deaths than ever before. And the answer would be, well, because of the, look at the, how fentanyl is affecting everything. Right. So that's the cause of the myth. And so progressives, let's leave poor Ethan Nadelman aside. Progressives have to answer the question, we're such a progressive society. We're doing, we have all kinds of drug treatment. Oh, by the way, 900,000 900, people have died now since 2000. What the hell's going on? You have to blame it on something and fentanyl's the answer. Mm. And progressives, if anything, are actually worse than conservatives in coming up with this drug fantasy demonization. So now we have two, the war of the competing memes is, well, police officers disregard the safety and meaning of black lives and kill them. Mm. Oh, fentanyl's a drug that's produced artificially and it kills people and you can't avoid that. And so the prosecution is prosecuting a police officer. So the first meme works for them. And God, they have some good evidence. They have 10 videos of a cop sitting on a guy's neck who's praying to God and his mother. I can't breathe. And then he stops, goes unconscious. Mm. Really and then he yeah. stops. And then they, they just had the um, emergency worker guys say, well, we couldn't get the cop to get off him. You know, we had no pulse. So that's one meme. And the defense meme is, oh, this man took fentanyl. Everybody knows if you take fentanyl, you die. Our defense is going to be, well, you pointed out, well, he was, took fentanyl, he was crazed. And then the second defense is going to be, well, fentanyl killed him. And they already had testimony on the a couple of days ago from an off-duty firewoman EMT worker came and she deals with drug deaths. Everybody calls it drug overdose deaths. And she said, well, that wasn't a drug overdose death. When a person's dying from a drug, they're comatose. Mm. They're not screaming. Right. Breathe, get off me. Right. It's not, you know, I've seen a ton of those deaths. So that's, and now they have an EMT guy who's talking, who, you know, actually came. And so everybody's, so they're all dealing with these competing memes. You hit on exactly, by the way, that's, that's, I was going to point that out. 
that I wouldn't have thought to use the defense, oh, fentanyl killed him, because from all those videos, he was lucid until the moment he obviously was, right, couldn't. Lost consciousness. Yeah, lost consciousness, yeah. And so, you know, um, little do people realize that, you know, watching this little podcast is essential for understanding the daily news, which I began by saying, why are they having George Floyd his dead ex-girlfriend testify for the prosecution that he regularly took fentanyl. I mean, we have to kind of back up five steps to figure that all out. Mm. So, you know, where we've arrived at is um, we're back to the original study. Well, marijuana and opioid, let me throw out another piece of research, by the way, going way back to the seventies, um, there's a famous series of studies, Lee Robbins studied returning Vietnam veterans. And, and she wrote a paper called Everything We Believed About Drugs Is Wrong. And she said, heroin on the streets of the United States for returning veterans is no more likely to be consumed regularly or compulsively than barbiturates, amphetamines, or marijuana. Mm-hmm. Even though, and then later she refers to heroin as addictive. So she's just said what you've just showed, what people you know, are as more or less likely to use, you know, any psychoactive substance compulsively or negative, you know, in an addictive fashion. So it makes no sense to regard one or the other as addictive. It's more appropriate to say, well, why are people addicted or not addicted and how do they get out of addicted? Mm-hmm which is what happened with the Vietnam things. Most of them stopped being addicted. And when they got back, the main finding was guys who would use drugs addictively in Vietnam, when they got back to the US, when they used heroin again, didn't use it addictively. And if they used it addictively, you know, they had a lot of guys to look at. That was a, you don't get heroin addict studies, you know, involving 50,000 people, you know what I mean? So they were able to look at masses of people. They said, "Buddy, you know, one of the things that amazed us was that, you know, heroin wasn't used any more regularly than any other drug. So that would be the kind of finding that Carl Hart would look at mm. if he looked, read that part of my work and he'd say, huh. So, you know, calling marijuana bad or good and heroin bad or good, that doesn't make sense. That's not what's happening here. But another thing that I pointed out in that study, I have a big table. And on that, in that table, they list every illicit drug. And they have a physical dependence category and a psychological dependence category. And as I asked in the meaning of addiction, well, what's psychological dependence? Every single drug with psychological dependence producing. I said, well, all they have on this table is drugs. Could you put other things on this table? And would they be psychological dependence? There are two drugs that are physically dependence producing on that table in 1968. What are those two things? In they 19- have, okay, 1968 heroin, alcohol and heroin. Alcohol. Right, right, right. So we love Carl Hart. We think he's a genius. But when Carl Hart was confronted with, Art isn't heroin addictive, he answered, well, do you drink? Alcohol's addictive. Carl Hart's using a 1968 chart of what's addictive. We don't look at it that way in any way, shape or form. So we say people become addicted to powerful experiences 
they're more susceptible at different periods in their life. As a general rule of thumb, they gradually outgrow it. If you look at our book, they're half again as likely to be addicted to the substance in each succeeding age bracket. As they mature by the time they're 40, there's only a small percentage of people who are addicted to any kind of a substance. So that's, that's the good news. Um, and, and so the study that you review shows there's not that many people who are, I mean, who wants 11% of kids to be addicted to, you know, anything. We don't. The good news is, well, that's a pretty big percentage, but it drops to 6% in the next age frame. Um, and in a way, we regard it as confirmatory to our point of view. Well, heroin, it doesn't matter. Heroin and marijuana is not what the debate's about. Legalizing marijuana, if anything, of course, and we would agree with DPA on this. In general, you're going to get in less life-threatening trouble with marijuana than, you know, opioids. Uh, there are, addiction isn't the issue. It's more or less harmful usage and some substances, you know, you basically can't get poisonous marijuana. Of course, in my, when I wrote Outgrowing Addiction, I went to the local high school, Summit, New Jersey, very wealthy community. And the cop from, um, what's the, what are they, from there got up and he said, well, you probably read about it. A kid got marijuana and had a horse tranquilizer. He smoked it and he went crazy. He had a dial into a hospital. So he ran up to a window and he broke the window and he cut his arm and he died. This is when you were writing Addiction Proof Your Child or? Uh, What's that? This is when you were writing Addiction Proof Your Child. I wrote that and I told the story in Addiction Proof Your Child. So they have to explain how every kind of addiction. And I said, so I, I got kicked out of that meeting, by the way. And Carl read an article about that and he wrote me a, one of those e uh, emails where he really liked me. <laughs> I got kicked out of that. I got up and I said, where did that happen? You know, I'm, this is a little bit before total internet, you know, where you can look everything up. I said, you know, I'm in Morris County 20 years or so. Where did that happen? Because that's the kind of thing I would usually notice. It's some bullshit stuff. And that Carl loves those bullshit, uh, pointing out those bullshit stories. Mm -hmm with that, you know, meth and other kinds of things. So um, um, they, they, they tell this bullshit story and they want to point out that everything's equally death causing. Of course, it's complete. by the way, a woman came up to me afterwards. She was in charge of alcohol education for the school. They used to have a safe driver's program and they cut the safe driver's program. Now, this is an example of where D.A.R.E., actually harms people. And the woman said, well, I tell my kids, you know, I'm not telling you to go out and drink, but if you feel that you're not in a good condition to drive, call me up. You know, drinking too much as a kid happens. Dying in a car accident, that, you don't want that to happen. That's called harm. That's the most basic form of harm reduction. And this craziness of blaming all kinds of drugs, um, gets in the way of doing actual harm reduction. So we, we're undeterred by this message. We feel it reinforces our message about life process program. We feel it's a clear harm reduction message. And yet we would run into currents and arguments with some of the people that we'd be considered to be in the same bailiwick with, 
whose first reaction would be, what? Marijuana is as addictive as heroin. Who the hell said that? Who came up with that? And as I said, um, uh, Lee Robbins uh, published those results in 1976 and 1980. It's the same results you always get. The proclivity to use things addictively is more or less the same. It's not the things that determine that kind of addictiveness. So we would say, yeah, marijuana is as addictive as opioids. If you're going to use that term addictive, if, if you gun to our head, but different emphasis. We would say, of course it is just like, or you could say it the other way around. So I wrote a piece. If you look my name up, marijuana is addictive. So what? Yeah. You know, and I actually wrote a piece for Will. And uh, if you look it up, filter, yeah, marijuana is addictive. Is as addictive as anything else. Here's how to prevent it from being addictive. So the question is, well, what do you do? I mean, you don't want, you are in a position where you, your job is, you don't, you don't welcome 12 to 17 year olds being addicted. You know, how do you encourage a person to avoid being addicted at any age? Right. And your answer and our answer is to have them engaged with life, not to be afraid of life, to go out and try things, to feel that they're capable of dealing with things and to help them deal with those things and help them explore you. That's called growing up. And some degree of addictiveness has always occurred. Um, but, we're, but we're, you know, I mean, we, we're the, you and I, and you on a daily basis are the business, we're striving for zero addiction. We're not, but we're not striving for zero drug use or experiences that can be addictive because that's craziness. So, you know, just uh, how this latest JAMA study relates to the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. You know, I just, we just wanted to, if you're looking at things the right way. So, um, one news item that we described is no marijuana is legal. And the person in the United States has been tremendously progressive. Bless his soul. Joe Biden has been as great as can be. They just fired six people on his campaign. I don't think they told us exactly for what. I think they had positive drug tests, probably for marijuana. I remember seeing that and thinking, there's the old Biden. <laughs> right. And Joe Biden doesn't drink. Joe Biden's against drugs and alcohol. He's a nut. You know, God bless the man. And it so happens that Joe Biden's son has just released his autobiography called Beautiful Things. So, I mean, one question, which we've addressed to some degree, if a guy like Joe Biden, who seems to be a good guy, he's a good father, a good grandfather, God bless his soul, he's so against, he's never had a drink in his life, and he's so against drugs, what's the relationship of that to the fact that his son I mean, this son went as far off the deep end as you can go. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read. This is from the New York Times book review. He, this is a quote. I'm a 51-year-old father who helped raise three beautiful daughters, writes President Biden's younger son, who now has a year-old son of his own in the prologue. I bought crack cocaine on the streets of Washington, D.C. and cooked on my own inside a hotel bungalow in Los Angeles. I've been so desperate for a drink that I couldn't make the one block walk between a liquor store and my apartment without uncapping the bottle to take a swig. 
In the last five years alone, my two decades long marriage is dissolved. Guns have been put in my face. And at one point I dropped clean off the grid, living in a $59 a night Super 8 motel off I-95 while scaring my family even more than myself. Whew. So people end up in rehab. Well, he ended up in rehab, having done a lot less than he did. Mm. Um, so he went to rehab. He went to rehab early on in life, and he relapsed after seven years after his father joined the Obama ticket. What's the point? He'd been in rehab. His father became a candidate for vice president. That's a little stressful. Um, and that ended his son's lobbying career because he had restrictions on him. He went back to rehab after his father became vice president, and then he relapsed again in 2016, his brother Bo, dare I say it, the favorite son. He was the golden son as well. Yeah. Yeah. A tough guy to match. He purchased crack from a homeless addict who later moved in with him. Huh? The son of the vice president, now current president, lived with a in a rundown shack with a crack addict? Huh? The relationship was symbiotic, he writes. It was two crack addicts who couldn't find their way out of a paper bag, a one-act crack farce. So he's been in rehab twice. He attempted to quit crack with the help of ketamine, which is another of our colleagues' favorite things psychoactive compounds and 5-MeO-DMT therapy, which employs the grand secretions of the Sonoran Desert Toad. This is, the, to me, the next sentence is the best part of the review. He doesn't disclose how he paid for these treatments. <laughs> I mean, the one thing you're thinking about, you know, going to rehab and doing, and getting, you know, um, ketamine costs money. I, I have a, you know, he's a privileged guy. So, he went through all the best treatments you can get if you have money. This is the bad part for him. And you might say, well, what could be worse than what you've already read? Once you decide that you're the bad person everyone thinks you're become, it's hard to find a good guy you once were, Biden writes. You know, he had three beautiful daughters. He had a productive career. He loved his father and his brother and a lot of people. He wasn't the worst guy around, but he was looking pretty bad. Eventually, I quit looking for the good guy I was. I decided I wasn't the person everybody who loved me thought I was anymore. Now, this is the second best part of the book for me. While he's doing all this, the best thing about, to me, Joe Biden is that he didn't send out the FBI to find his son. At some level, Joe Biden's religion, I'm making this up, I have no idea about Joe Biden's religion, is you're not going to save a human being, you know, you can help, you can pay for their rehab, which I, I bet happened, but you know, you can't take a human being and grab them and make them better. Mm. Biden doesn't make excuses for addiction, but describes being alone in the crowd. Of the car accident killed his mother, he, he, when he was a young boy, his mother, he was in the car with his brother when his mother and sister right. were killed. This is the best thing in the, this alone, I'll never say anything bad about um, Hunter Biden. I want to make it clear. I don't see that tragic moment as necessarily resulting behaviors that lent themselves to addiction. That would be a cop out. 
So God bless him for saying that. And how would that help him? I mean, he's not going to go back in time and never make that not happen. So he's got to live a life without that. But he describes a long-running feeling of unease, particularly in social situations, quote, the kind of insecurity is almost universal among those with real addiction issues. A feeling of being alone in the crowd. I always felt alone in the crowd. Well, you know, uh, one thing we talked to, uh, uh, you and I talked about Carl Hart was, he doesn't explain who becomes addicted. You know, and he says, well, maybe they have mental issues. Okay, that makes sense. And Hunter Biden was a popular guy. He was part of a family but he felt alone in the crowd. I mean, that's a ton of meaning. I mean, if you were working with somebody as a client, you'd say, can you tell me more about that? Or do you feel unloved? Do you feel that people can't love you? Do you feel that, um, that you can't relate to other human beings? Why is it that you can't break down those barriers? Because intimacy and connection is critical. Mm -hmm. So this is the last paragraph of the review. It's a, good, it's a good review. Hunter Biden's lived in a, SR, a single occupancy hotel with a crack addict. He's, he's poured vodka down his throat. He's completely isolated from his children and his father's vice president, one of the most important people in the United States. I mean, you can't go any lower than that. So somehow... He gets a date with Melissa Cohen. And this is the final paragraph of the review. An hour into their first dinner, they declared their love to one another. I would say for one another. <laughs> An hour after that, Biden told Melissa he was a crack addict. Okay, so that's interesting first date, okay? <laughs> a lot's happened already. <laughs> She said, and this is the last sentence in the review. Not anymore, you're finished with that. And that was a couple years ago. So, you know, do you have any worries about, um, as a clinician, do you have any worries about that little bit of narrative? Uh, how, or how do you respond to it? His dinner Which, date with Oh, the, the dinner date itself. <laughs> well, just this might this is probably not what you're going for. You might think that that could happen in reverse reverse order. Like it's almost like, hey, I love you. Do you love me? Okay, good. Uh, we should get married. Um, I have a ton of student loan debt or something like that. You you might be forth a little bit more forthright about, you know, what the life circumstances. I guess what I, you and I worry. We're about people building up the substance of their lives. Mm -hmm. We don't like, you know, magical solutions, whether they're ketamine. We figure that's what got him in crack in the first place. He was in a lost sea. He took crack and he said, shoo. And now, and then he tried to take ketamine to stop taking crack and that didn't work for him. And other, you know, drug solutions that didn't work for him. So, there's good news and there's bad news, Melissa. I mean, you know, one hour into a date deciding, you know, you're going to be married for the rest of your life, that that strikes even a romantic guy like you, I guess, as a little precipitous. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the second date. It's, it sort of reminds me of, um, you know, we, we've said before, 
it's about maturity or a bulwark against addiction. So, you know, one of the major things are once you have a kid and a family and someone can use that logic and say, oh, well, all I have to do is have a kid, you know, and so just make the spontaneous sort of irrational decision. I'll just have a kid and then things will come together. It doesn't really, I wouldn't suggest it working out like that. I wouldn't suggest go a whole hog after the one thing that you can clutch and not be addicted or you're going to become addicted to that thing. On the other hand, Bo Biden, I'm sorry, Hunter, Bo's is Hunter, dead yeah. uh, Hunter Biden knew the value of a family, his mm. own family, loves his father and his brother. True. And he has three daughters. He seems to have, you know, although how they're reacting to all this, we'll never know. So it's almost like he relapsed back into family. He sort of, well, he had a successful marriage. He loved his three daughters. They seem to be, I, we've talked about them on television, you know, good, reasonable human beings, very solid citizens. So he knows something about that and it just clicked in again. So you and I are, would be a little cautious about somebody. So no, I met somebody last night. After an hour, I knew I loved her. And, uh, you know, I could just marry her and my life would be, I have a kid with her, which has happened. They have a child and my life would be okay. We'd be a little, a little cautious about that. On the other hand, I guess our summary, my summary, you know, I send a copy of this to some of our coaches and to you. And I said, well, what this proves is that love is more powerful than crack, rehab and ketamine. Mm. I mean, okay. He knows something about love. He's a man who has been loved, who has loves, uh, who loves his daughters, I'm sure, his three teenage daughters. And he sort of was able to link into that as, as Anna did in his contradiction. Now that we're only going on two and three years, you know, you and I would be a little bit reluctant, you know, to bet our lives totally on Hunter Biden, but he seems to be in a good place. He's certainly not taking crack now. And so, you know, we just wanted to say that, um, I'll just tell one other story. <clears throat> how does that, how does his, you know, he tried ketamine and he tried, you know, various drug cures and, you know, Nora Volko could do a brain scan. What did the brain scan of that dinner look like? You know, mm. one time I, when Seven Tools for Addiction came out, somehow, who can remember in my life, I was in Washington, D.C. and I was doing some work and I did a radio they didn't have podcasts but you could do radio interviews and it so happened a professional football player was on being interviewed at the same time because he just signed with the Washington football team and I told my story and the guy sort of interrupted he said well you know I have a story that's sort of relevant I don't know I said knock yourself out he said when I graduated high school I got a scholarship to any names a college my grandfather was in his 70s. He had smoked since he was a teenager. And my grandfather said, son, it was his grandson, uh, I'm going to stop smoking because I want to live to see you be a star. Hmm. And he quit smoking. So, you know, what, how, how do you describe that? In neuroscientific terms, how do you describe that in therapeutic terms? How do you describe that in addiction theory terms? Well, love is among the most powerful factors. It can be, it can go in a bad way, in a good way. And in these two cases, Hunter Biden and this football player, 
And his grandfather, love was the greatest cure of all. So, you know. As you pointed out, it's a major influencer for so many just dimensions of a person's life, whether it's uh, destructive or whether it's the thing that's, what would you say, curative, ameliorative of other problems you might have. And, you know, I, I mean, uh, if I were to interview Hunter Biden, you know, I'd ask him about how has this been a positive relationship? How did she accept you? I mean, did she see your quality? I mean, I'd like to know more about what kind of love this was and how it, how it's matured and how it's played out in his new family. I don't think just deeming the word love solves problems. Um, it's a label that people use for a lot of different experiences. It's powerful. And uh, we might, you know, I wrote a book called, with Archie called Love and Addiction, which explored the meaning of love in terms of it's being the opposite of addiction. Hmm. All right. So I know you have to rush off because you have family and uh, daughter uh, implica uh, obligations. And I know um, you'll be teaching your daughter you know critical reading skills because you know i mean she's a little young for some of these topics i realize that but you know you're sitting there watching television and they're having the murder victim's girlfriend get on and explain that he took drugs what's this about mm -hmm. you have to sort of take a couple of steps backwards to put peace with the world together People complain about media all the time, and it's true. They deliver sound bites and just little snippets of news that make us feel terror or make us feel hatred of somebody else. But I think that that's all, you know, it's easy to sidestep if you just can't help but think critically about things. If you're asking the questions, well, what does that mean? Or why would someone say that? So I, I you're obligated that. to think that way. Yeah. Even when there's a good story on television, you're mm -hmm. obligated to think, why, why are they telling the story? So, you know, with that little message for this little Sunday, you know, uh, have a happy Sunday. You too. And, um, you know, now you can legally engage in uh, cannabis-related activities. If it's something you're into, I just know that it's legal now. In New York. <laughs> happy Sunday, Stanton. Thanks again.